Hello, and welcome to Mr. America, The Bearded Truth, covering political and social issues one liberty at a time, with entertaining insights of current events and important discussions on topics that affect us all, shining the torch of liberty and brightening the future by bringing libertarianism into our everyday life. And now, your host, the friendly neighborhood libertarian, Jason Lyon, Mr. America, The Bearded Truth, on Muddied Waters Media. Boy, am I excited to be here with you all tonight. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. It's another amazing, beautiful, gorgeous Monday night. And, of course, I am your host, Mr. Merka, the Beard of Truth, Jason Lyon. I want to thank you guys all so much for being here, joining in tonight. I have one hell of a guest with me, uh, the always amazing Hannah Cox. And so we are going to be discussing tonight, just kind of starting off with with a, a brief overview of some of the libertarian stances um, when it comes to the criminal justice system. But then we're going to be talking about what has really brought people um, the, or what has really brought the criminal justice system to the forefront of so many of our minds. Um, And of course that is cases like Kyle Rittenhouse. That is the Ahmaud Arbery case. That is uh, the, uh, (coughs) pardon me, the Julius Jones case. Um, As you guys can see, I'm still battling a little bit of the sickness from um, from last week. Uh, hopefully, uh, by the time we come back for the next episode, I will be 100% so I can stop eating these cough drops. Although, I do got to say I love eating those cough drops. But before I bring on more cough drops and Hannah Cox, uh, for the conversation we're about to have, um, I want to first start off with saying thank you, of course, to Muddy Waters Media Production, and of course that is to Matt Wright and Spike Cohen for giving me a platform to come out here to give you guys my views, my stances, my opinions on things, and of course the amazing guests that we have on each week. Um, of course, if you guys love Muddy Waters Media and this is your first time here, thank you so much for for leaning in, checking this out. You can find us on all of your favorite uh, streaming platforms. That is your YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Twitch, and Float. If you don't like watching us live, I understand. Um, some of us um, spoke in Matt Wright and Spike Cohen are incredibly gorgeous, and it's it's it kind of takes away from the audio perspective of it. You can always take us on the go on all of your favorite podcast apps. Wherever you find us, wherever you listen to us, wherever you watch us, please do make sure you guys are liking, subscribing, uh, interacting with all the posts as much as you can, helping build out this wonderful, beautiful, muddied army, um, potentially even mudsketeers, which brings us into the next point. Of course, if you guys want to lean into the Muddy Waters Media Group and become a mudsketeer, you can go over to anchor.fm slash waters subscribe where for the low low price of just a couple lattes a month you can get exclusive content throughout the month and also be a part of the wonderful amazing muddy zooms if you guys missed the last muddy zoom go back a couple weeks you'll be able to check that out amazing time there of course and we are so excited for the next one um if you want to pimp out Muddy Waters Media, of course you can go over to muddywatersmedia.com slash store. You can buy the merch. You can look beautiful, look amazing. And of course, everyone's going to know that you're the smartest person in the room because you're wearing that swag. Want to give a quick shout out to Kelsey Lion Designs. If you're looking to rebrand, build a new uh, uh build a new endeavor, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a uh, media station, whether it's a campaign, whether it's 
you're just looking to make Christmas cards because that's what you're doing for the season coming up. Kelsey Lion Designs is here for you. So if you guys go over to KelseyLionDesigns.com slash or KelseyLionDesigns.com and use the code MUDDIEDWATERS, you guys will be able to get 10% off. She is an incredible graphic designer. She is the one who has taken the branding for this show. This this little bit right... Oh, no, no. There we go. This little bit right here, she has rebranded my show on the fly. So whatever you're looking to get into, you can be a part of the amazing libertarians that are coming out there and using Kelsey Lyon designs be a part of it. Be a part of the growing community. Uh, everyone has used her that I've heard from has had high remarks. I haven't heard anyone say anything negative. So get a part of it. Go join in. But <coughs> without further ado, apologize for the coughs. Without further ado, let's bring on the fee online ambassador. Let's bring on the host of a brand new podcast based uh of course i'm talking about the amazing anna cox how are you tonight i'm good how are you oh, i'm doing amazing now that i've gotten <laughs> through that <laughs> yeah though that's so much oh, i gotta figure out how to be uh short and sweet with that stuff it's been absolutely amazing knowing that you're sitting in the waiting room waiting to come on um you've had a lot of things come down the pipeline for you um over time and i've i've been watching you a little bit before people fall in love with hannah cox tonight if this is their first time seeing from you what are tell us a little bit about you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're engaged on what's fee online how are you brand ambassador of that and of course i, w- I want to know about your your podcast so who is yeah, hannah cox so um, so Fee Online, we'll start there, is where I work full-time. I get asked all the time, like, are you full-time at Fee or are you doing your own thing? Because I, I do a lot of work. But I do work full-time at the Foundation for Economic Education. I'm their brand, amba- um, brand ambassador and content manager, and I've been there since May. But I've been familiar with Fee for so long. They were actually one of the first organizations I ever encountered when I was still working in the music industry, which was my first career, um, starting to dabble in politics, really trying to figure out what my views were and really starting to kind of self-teach myself economics. I relied heavily on fee. I read a ton of their articles, really learned a lot from the scholars that they'd had. And for those who aren't familiar, fee has this really long history. They're actually the nation's oldest libertarian think tank. They were founded in the 1950s by a man named Leonard E. Reed, who was just this like pillar um, of philosophy and, and econ. And, you know, it's amazing when you look back at Fee's history, the people who have come through their halls, like I'm talking F.A. Hayek, I'm talking Mises, all of these, you know, really big giants in our movement's history have been affiliated or worked in house for Fee. And so it's, it's really cool, um, the history there. And, and they continue to carry on that legacy and work to educate people about economic principles and how they impact public policy in our daily lives. And, so I was really stoked to begin working with them. I actually started off doing a fellowship with them last year. And then um, as tends to be the case for me, once I start doing a job, I tend to just keep like expanding that job and taking on more work and more work. And then all of a sudden I was full-time. So um, oh. it's, it's good to be there. And if people aren't familiar, they should definitely check out fee.org. We do articles. We do a ton of new media. We do video content. We have some really cool YouTube shows like Out of Frame and Common Sense Soapbox. So there's, there's something there for everybody, and we really try to be sort of a new, um, modern kind of think tank that's really focused on media and content creation and getting people educational, educational materials and um, 
in a con in a, in a frame that's actually interesting and engaging and not dry or boring. And so yeah, love the work that I do there. Um, as you mentioned, I'm also the host of base. So base is actually not new base has been around for about a year. Um, but I did, uh, just recently launch a spinoff to base, which is called the base brief. So base, the OG episodes is okay. what I call them is a monthly series that comes out that really digs into a big pressing problem that we have in the country and traces our way back through the history and public policy decisions that got us there. Um, I look at kind of how we were initially structured constitutionally, how things were supposed to function, what it would look like in a free market and how we moved away from that and therefore created these issues. And then I launched the base brief, um, which is a weekly series with my colleague, Brad Palumbo, a not quite a month ago, so it's brand new. Um, and we're doing that weekly show. It comes out on Wednesdays where we kind of talk about the news of the moment, the top headlines, and and sort of give people behind the scenes insight into how Brad and I think through things. You know, before we write, before we create content, we often are brainstorming together and thinking through the implications of different policies or events that are going on. So we figured just why not throw that into a podcast and, and throw it out there. So we've been doing that for a little bit. It's been very fun. And we're doing some bonus episodes as well. We just released our first one today, actually, with Congresswoman Nancy Mace talking about her bill to legalize marijuana. So lots of good stuff coming out. I've, I've basically kind of expanded the that brand. It's, it's now going to be under the Base Politics <coughs> Network. So if you search Base Politics on iTunes or Spotify, you can find the entire series. You can also find it on YouTube and Facebook. So we're all over the place, but would love for people to check that out. Oh, that there is so much good stuff in there. That oh. I'm I'm telling you already the the viewers are going to fall in love with you. Um just because the constitution thing. That 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 thing really stuck out to me. The idea of if we follow the constitution, what the world would look like and how much different it is and how we failed and everything. I, I, all right. I'm not going to go off on that rampage. Uh I used to consider myself a constitutionalist. That was like my founding. I was like, you know, I was my fire and brimstone. I was like, nope, this is not written in the constitution, not enumerated, yada 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 and I could go for hours i could go for days yeah um, well i mean there's nothing wrong with the constitution i used to call no. myself a constitutionalist too i think the problem with the constitution is that it didn't do enough right it didn't go far enough in actually ensuring the ideals that it laid out were fully implemented obviously our founders didn't live up to the principles they espouse that's an ongoing problem we have in our society and in our political leaders um you know the same thing with they'll, they'll say they support free markets or capitalism and you start watching them you're like actually no you don't but yeah. um you know i think that's the problem with the constitution a lot of people want to say like throw the baby out with the bathwater i think the constitution's great i just think it needed um better components to actually ensure we had accountability and and clawbacks and the ability um, to ensure that we really had recourse when the government got out of line. So I don't I don't think we were off to a bad start. It just, you know, didn't do enough to ensure it was actually implemented. Yeah. No, it when you first started saying it, immediately the Lysander Spooner quote popped in my head. And then, you know, as as we continue on, of course, it was like, you know, it, it definitely does have like the necessities in it. And it's just a matter of if we're to have a a government that would be tolerated it would be within the constitutional limits how do we how do we get there but that's not the conversation for tonight i don't want to, i don't want to get stuck on too far on this but what we are discussing tonight and what i am so incredibly excited about because you from my understanding is like one of the big things that you had started off when you got into politics was the death penalty this was something that kind of for lack of a better phrasing, it was like really what brought you to like some public views that just got you like a lot of support and everything else. Um, because yeah, we had to be opposed to it 
for conservative values, for small government values, for fiscal responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, am I am I on on base with that? Yeah, kind of. So I I actually um, like I said, I was working in music. I kind of stumbled into politics, thinking I was going to go to law school or back to school to be a therapist. And I was kind of split on which path I wanted to take. I had already um, gone to a pretty expensive school for undergrad, so I didn't want to go and take on more student debt unless I knew for sure, like, this is the pathway. Um, so I started doing some, like, work on the side while I was still working in entertainment to see which path I wanted to take. And so I started working for an attorney first in Tennessee um, on the side, and he ran a Second Amendment organization. And then I thought, well, I'm very pro-Second Amendment, and I can see if I like, like, his day-to-day. And um, and then I also started doing some volunteer work for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is a great organization. Um, and I actually went in not meaning to do anything political with them. I went in volunteering to answer the suicide hotline. And I was in there for maybe an hour. Um, and they were kind of taking my information and interviewing me and, you know, kind of doing a background check to make sure I was stable before they gave me this kind of role. And throughout the course of that, realized I was doing this other political work on Second Amendment issues. And they were like, listen. We don't have enough funding, which, you know, if you ever work around mental health, you know, none of these orgs have enough funding. Never. They're like, we really need a lobbyist. We can't afford one. Like, how do you feel about being a lobbyist for us? And I was like, I mean, I feel like I could do it. <laughs> uh, sure. And so I kind of became a pro bono lobbyist for them, actually. And it was throughout the course of that work that I first encountered the criminal justice system. And this was around 2014, I would say. Um, at that point, I was just sort of, I don't know, I, I really hadn't sorted out my own political beliefs at that point. They were still very intertwined with my parents. So I'd grown up very Republican, very like middle of the road Republican. Like we supported Bush and McCain and like all these general people. So I was pretty pro-war. I was kind of a neocon. And like, um, I broke with like the GOP on social issues. I knew that, but that was about the extent of it. Um, and so for the first time in my life, I was encountering some criminal justice issues because there is so much overlap with yes. the mental health population and the criminal justice population. And I really credit NAMI to opening my eyes to a lot of things because were it not for that experience, to be totally honest, I probably would have never had these encounters and I would not really have been privy to a lot of what goes on because I am a, you know, middle-class white woman. My experience with the justice system has been personally fine, right? Like I, nothing yeah. happens to me. Um, in fact, like I know I've had several inter interactions with cops when I was like drinking in college where I was like talking back to them and like probably would have gotten arrested if I looked differently. And instead they were like, okay. <laughs> so in working with NAMI, I started encountering some of these issues with the criminal justice system, really started having my eyes open to how some of it functioned. And they asked me to work on a bill that was going to be seeking an exclusion from the death penalty for people with severe mental illness in the state of Tennessee. And I was like, no. I'm not going to work on that for you because I'm pro death penalty and I was pro bono. So I could, you know, pick and choose what I worked on. And they were like, what? <laughs> like you hate the government. You hate it. You're like the yeah. standard limited. You're like our token. Like what, what do you mean? You want the death penalty. You don't like the government at all. And just the way they framed it, you know, was so different than anybody had ever posed that to me before. And of course, growing up, I had always been taught that the death penalty was a deterrent to crime, that it saved money, that it made us safer, that you would want it if you were a victim's family member. Um, and my dad's a Southern Baptist pastor. So on top of that, I was taught that it was like biblical and like just Ugh. and all of these you know, yeah. really weird things. 
Um, so I, I was coming into it with that. And, and I think that like most people, the only um, thing I had ever heard as far as the other side's argument against the death penalty were really straw man arguments, right? Like I was told, oh, the left just cares about the, def- you know, offenders more than they do the victims. Yeah. And they're just bleeding hearts. And like all of these things that actually have absolutely nothing to do with the reasons people on the left are against the death penalty. So that's a problem when you only hear straw man arguments against something you're not really ready to defend yourself. And so I got into the situation and I quickly realized in these conversations, like, oh, I think I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. And that's embarrassing. Like I like to really know my stuff. And, and so I went home and I started researching and I just started like reading a lot of studies and came back to the office Monday, like, uh oh, (laughs) you know? Um, and so, yeah, so I, I kind of became, um, opposed to the death penalty and, and, and then in 2016, I kept working for NAMI. I started working on that bill. 2016, I moved into politics full-time, was working for the Beacon Center of Tennessee, which is a free market think tank, doing a lot of, um, various pieces of legislation and pro bono litigation and continued working on criminal justice reform for them and on the side for NAMI. So, um, that really was like my, definitely part of my initial work in politics, but it wasn't until I had been full-time in politics about two and a half years in 2018 I took over an organization called conservatives concerned about the death penalty and ran it at the national level and and I think that was um it definitely was I think what put me on the national scene um and made people more aware of the work I was doing we had a really successful three years I overturned the death penalty with the help of many other people um one year every year I was there so we had a really successful track record it was the first time states had repealed in about a decade so um, it had been sort of stagnant for a while, and we were able to reignite that and really get some good traction. Um, so it was it was a good three and a half years. And then just recently, like I said, I moved over to fee full time. So I'm not doing death penalty work anymore. I'm actually not doing public policy at all right now. I um, am, am focusing a bit more on education and, and media and content through fee. But I do still have a fellowship with Americans for Prosperity in Virginia and, and get to be involved in some policy work through that. But I still care so much about the death penalty about criminal justice reform. And it continues to be sort of um, one of my primary beats that I write about. I have, I write about everything under the sun, but I obviously still gravitate towards criminal justice reform. It will always be like my top, my top issue for sure. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because like for me, like I've worked in so many different capacities and in like the political spheres, you know, I've not nearly to the, to the levels that you're talking, of course, but you know, being out there and being a door knocker, being out there and, and, you know, canvassing and and helping organize those and running events and helping with educate people on different uh, forms of legislation, everything else. And it's just like, for me too, it's always like, I always find myself falling back on the criminal justice stuff. Like I love talking about healthcare and certificate need laws, breaking this down and, and making it available. And I go, yeah, but we're also criminalizing people for the most ridiculous things ever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's amazing that, you know, for you too, it's like, the thing that draws you back is we have such a broken and fractured system um yeah, that yeah so it's hard not have. to be passionate about it because at the end of the day our government does a lot of atrocious things but when you look at the criminal justice system this is the crime they perpetrate against us um and it happens in such large scales and it happens in such a like very biased way and i just think as somebody who you know actually does stringently believe in a limited government and individual liberty like you can't not be infuriated by this you cannot be and you also just cannot help but be radicalized by it once you work around the system it's so much worse than what you know you know I often talk to people who have like kind of gotten kind of hype on this and they've been listening to true crime and I'm like 
yes, but you're at the tip of the iceberg. Like the things I have seen, the things I know about what they do will keep you up at night. It is, it's, I can't, I'm, I'm very good with words and I talk a lot, but I will never be able to fully sum up just how bad it is. No, no. It, it, so well put. But I think that that's a good jumping point for us to go into. Recently in Oklahoma, there was a, a man co- uh, commuted. We found that word out. Um, <laughs> both blanking earlier, like, what's that word? But we had Julius Jones actually get commuted, which was, yeah. came to a shock for so many Oklahomans. Um, in, in, um, or Oklahomies, as I like to call them here. Um from that episode if you guys missed that episode make sure you guys go back and watch the episode with natalie bruno um where we covered julius jones and, and many of these other things uh that are happening in oklahoma but you know with the state that is so ready to have people be incarcerated for life and for putting people to death um julius jones shocked so many of us that stand so essentially against uh the death penalty um i wanted to hear your thoughts on on like what led up to that point and and everything else on that yeah, so it's a little bit of important background knowledge, and let's see if I if I'm still on my numbers game since this isn't my full time job anymore. But um, about a third, about half of the country doesn't use the death penalty anymore at all, right? Um, about 24 states have repealed the death penalty. Another third of the states that still have it have not had an execution in a decade or more. So you're down to about like 10 to 12 states that have even used their death penalty in the past decade. For the most part despite it still being on the books, most places have moved away from it because it's stupid and it's expensive and they kill innocent people and it's a clog on the system. You know, all the reasons that we know it needs to be done away with. So Oklahoma is an outlier in many ways. Um, It remains one of the states that has used the death penalty the most throughout its history. It remains one of the few states that is still using its death penalty. And of those states, I would argue that Oklahoma has been one of the most problematic states in its usage of the death penalty because they've had a lot of botched executions. Um, What many people don't know is it's becoming harder and harder to carry out executions. And that's for one reason alone, and that's the free market. The pharmaceutical companies do not want their drugs used to kill people. It's pretty bad PR, right? It's also like kind of counterintuitive to their whole like oath to protect life. So um, they actually have in their contract stipulations that block states from being able to use their drugs. Because of that, states are doing some very sketchy things to get drugs to kill people. And Oklahoma is one of them. And so they're going to like these compound pharmacies and like having the drugs like manufactured without the recipe. And like, sometimes they're using subterfuge to try to get the drugs. Who knows what all they're doing. Um, And Oklahoma has suffered the repercussions of that. So they took kind of like a hiatus for a few years because they were like, oh, we're going to get sued. Um, And they stopped executions. But all of a sudden during COVID, they're like, COVID's happening. But you know what our priority is? We're bringing the executions back. Like COVID's not taking enough of us out. Let's go ahead. Jump on this. We've got our priorities in line. We're going to make sure we kill as many people as possible. So they bring executions back. Um, and with that, they had several people whose sentences had basically expired during that hiatus. So it was looking like if they resumed executions, you could have something happen where they had like a string of executions right in a row. And Julius Jones was among them. Julius Jones is a case um, that got prominence about two years ago or so. Kim Kardashian has brought some attention to it. There was a mini docuseries on it. And it's, it's one of those cases that I would put in my like questionable category. I'm very careful around this. I I would say every year there's that I've worked on the death penalty, there's been at least one person executed that I believe firmly to be innocent. Um, 
And then there's people I kind of have in my question box. I don't know with Julius Jones. I don't feel like it's as clear cut as some cases I've seen. Like he might be innocent. He might not. What I do know is they did not have the evidence to convict him and kill him. Not by a long shot. Like it is a very patchy case, very circumstantial evidence, um, lots of problems within it. And so there was an outcry against carrying out this execution. Um, And to be quite honest, I did not anticipate action. First and foremost, we just don't typically see Republican governors intervene, even when there is substantial evidence of somebody's innocence. Um, And we actually saw two Republican governors in one day take action in the past month. And so the governor of Oklahoma intervened and commuted Julius's sentence to life in prison without parole, I believe. Yes. Um, And then we also saw Tennessee's Republican governor intervene in another case. And in that one, I would say I was pretty sure the guy was innocent. He also had an intellectual disability. Um, And Tennessee's governor has let a lot of executions go through, one of which was already very questionable around the innocence um, about a year ago or so. And he didn't intervene, but he did this time. So um, that's progress in my book. I, I, you know, let's give, let's give props where it's due. I'm so glad they both decided to take those actions and it's a good step. Um, but there's still so much more work to be done ultimately. And like I said, it's dwindling. There's not that many States doing it. There's been fewer than 30 executions for like the past six, seven, eight years. So again, this is like a fringe practice, but the States that do it like Texas and Alabama, Mississippi are more prolific. Um, And so I just think the pressure really needs to be put on these states to abandon this practice and give it up. What's, what's amazing is like here in the state of South Carolina, um, I won't call it the great state because of what I'm about to say. Um, We have been one of those non-practicing death penalty states for a while, Mm -hmm. because just kind of what you were saying, like pharmaceutical companies have been not been afforded legal protections for if we produce this drugs, can we be protected from people knowing who we are? And they're like, no, 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 your people are going to be able to find out you made these drugs. Um, so they've refused to pr- provide these drugs for South Carolina executions. And we have a state law where you have to have two execution options available for every inmate. And so every inmate was like, you can either choose the electric chair and be killed, or you could choose the, um, choose the lethal injection where no one's going to provide you this drug. So the great, nope, the the state of South Carolina uh, decided that they're going to bring back firing squads. So now we will see another state become active once more in the idea of, we know without a, a shadow of a doubt, in many of these cases, as you said, where innocent people are being killed, where people are easily put into a questionable category of they may have been guilty they may have been innocent we aren't a hundred percent solidified where both of those categories of people will be killed by the state um this is in in you know for people who are fiscal uh fiscally responsible the cost for putting somebody in prison for the rest of their life is always going to be a lot um lower than the cost of of executing them and and i know like you could jump into this but it's you know i believe there's plenty more court cases the jury the jury selection is different um you have a, a different process for it all you have so many more different appeals you have just the list goes on and on and the cost there is yeah just insurmountable it's about a million dollars cheaper um per case to put somebody in prison for life without parole than it is to have a death penalty trial and oftentimes people make the misassumption that that is because of the appellate process. And they'll say like, let's shorten the appeals. Let's do it faster, which is like jaw dropping. Like, do you know how many innocent people we already kill? Like we need 
some better safeguards, not fewer. Um, but it's, it wouldn't even make it cheaper. The appellate process is actually for like, I think the trial is four times more expensive than the appellate process. So it's the trial, it's the trial itself that is so much more expensive. And you're right. It is, um, there's two components to a death penalty trial. There's a guilt and innocence phase and there's a sentencing phase. You have a longer and more strenuous jury selection process. You typically pay more witnesses. The government pays witnesses. Um, you do more lab testing. Yeah. Um, and, and you have more hours work typically by police and prosecutors and public defenders because we don't kill rich people. And so um, as a whole, like everything adds up and it is far more expensive to have a death penalty trial than it is to just mm. have a life in prison without parole, parole case. So way more expensive. Um, South Carolina is not totally an outlier in bringing back some really like morose kind of methods for execution. Utah's done that too. Um, and a few other States so far, only Tennessee has actually gone through with doing that. They started killing people with the electric chair again, personally. And this is going to sound probably a bit macabre, but like, I kind of almost say do it because I think that using the lethal injection method has allowed Americans to feel like that this is somehow more humane yeah. and not as gruesome and terrible as it is. And I'm like, no, if you're going to do it, I want you to know what you're co-signing. I want you, because people have this tough man attitude around the death penalty. Like you always meet that, you know, old buddy who's like, oh, I'd pull the trigger. No, you wouldn't shut up. Like, have you ever even seen a dead body? Cause I have, and it's horrible. Yeah. I promise you, you would not kill somebody like the, the tough guy act around it is so laughable to me. I'm like, tell me you've never actually been around a crime scene, right? Like it's ridiculous. You wouldn't be involved. I cannot fathom. You could round up five, six people to carry out a firing squad. So do it past that level of execution. And let's see you carry it out. Like let's shove it in people's faces, what we're doing. And let's quit pre like pretending that this is somehow a first world Western practice. It's not, you look like a caveman. Yeah. Oh, so well said i love it um no it, it really is though and and so many people are like you put it perfectly it's it's so much more humane it's like putting your puppy down you just put a needle in and and the puppy goes to sleep and they go to heaven or you know as many people view it they, they go to hell and that's it and it's just like no it's still like for those innocent people that this happens to they were merely existing got thrown into a cage thrown through a system and then now you just put them to sleep because you felt so yeah and even when they're not like look there are a lot of innocent people on death rows so far we've discovered one innocent person for every nine executions so it's not a non-substantial number but i do want to say this the vast majority of people there did do it right and i think that at the end of the day I've been around these people and you have to consider that most people carry out crimes before they're 25, before their brains have fully formed. Um, and that's not to excuse it or say they shouldn't be accountable. But what I will say is that when you meet these people, when they're 40, 50, 60, they are usually very different people and they usually yeah. are overcome with remorse. And, and this idea of like the Ted Bundy type serial killer is just not the reality of who you find in our, on our death rows and our prisons as a whole. That's why, you know, Ted Bundy's name, because he is such an outlier in the system. Like most people who are there were first and foremost themselves horribly victimized time and time and time again, have horrific trauma in their background. We know that that can then relate to cyclical violence. Um, it's very rare that you meet this like dichotomy of like offender and victim. Like, no, usually they're one and the same and the cycle repeats. And so when you actually sit down and meet these people, your idea of being able to just like kill them, well, it'll go away very quickly. And you really do start to recognize that life has meaning and that at the end of the day, 
people can do something terrible, but they don't lose their value as a human and that most people can be redeemed. And that again, is not to say that they should be not held accountable, that they even should be out of jail, but it is to say that somebody doesn't lose their value because of the worst thing they've ever done. And I think that the Hollywood narrative around criminals has made it really easy for us to dehumanize them and see them as monsters. Um, and again, you just don't find that like, and, and inevitably every time I talk about the death, the death penalty, the one thing people will say is like, what about Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer? It's always one of the two. And I'm like, yeah, it's always one of the two. Cause those are like your picture of who's there. And it's not like, especially Bundy. Bundy was a severe outlier. He was charming, good looking. He didn't have trauma in his background. He was decently wealthy. He was highly um, intelligent. He had lots of degrees. Like he was truly a sociopath. That's not the general population, even on death rows. Most crimes are crimes of passion or they're crimes that actually more frequently occur because somebody is not in their right mental state. They're in psychosis um, or they have a severe intellectual disability and, or they're under the influence of something. And so people just don't really have a very good understanding of what you're dealing with. And so again, when people say like, I'd be the one to do it. I'm like, you've never been 10 feet from a death row. You've no idea what you're talking about. Like go visit one, right? Go talk to these people. And I think you'll come away with a very different takeaway. (coughs) Um, And again, we shouldn't have the death penalty for practical reasons. First and foremost, it costs a lot of money. We kill innocent people. It's arbitrarily handed out. It does not make us safer. In fact, it, studies show I think it makes us less safe because of the money we waste on it versus solving more crimes. And the actual deterrent to crime is the assuredness that you will be caught, which in the U.S. is pretty low. We're really bad at solving crimes. We only Incredibly solve like so. 60% of homicides in a given year. So you're probably going to get away with it at the end of the day. Um, so actually, we see states that don't have the death penalty tend to have lower rates of violent crime, whereas those who have um, who use it have lower or have higher rates of violent crime. So I think there's a correlation there. So those are the main reasons, like from a public policy perspective, we should not be doing this. But then when you get into like kind of the ethical things beneath that, I just think people would have a very different impression if they actually had spent any time around the system or knew what they were talking about whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that's always like. I feel like we live in a society now where because people have Facebook, they have social media at their fingertips. They're like, I clearly have a PhD in in all of the (laughs) things, right? We saw this when COVID came out. We see this after every court hearing. We see this after every bill that comes out. They know exactly what it is, how it functions, and and, and the outcome. And so um, from our expert friends, of course, the death penalty is just to get rid of the world of all the bad people and we're going to be left with good people. And as as you had said, you know, what's what's great about um, what I've found from a lot of libertarian circles is that we're willing to listen to both sides because we have people coming from both sides that are here. And and a lot of people look at this as, as a lot of infighting. But for us, it's like we have libertarians still in this in, in the party and everything else in the movement that agree with the idea of, well, you know, we should have a death penalty. And then you lay out as you, as you did so eloquently. And it's just like, I've never heard that before. And, and just like you, when you, when you first started and you're like, nah, I'm pro bono. This, this ain't me. That's not me, yeah. bro. Uh, I'll see you on Monday with my head, my <laughs> tail between my, my legs. But um, we can, we can have this. And so, this isn't just for libertarians, of course. This is for you guys. If you guys have friends that are conservatives, make sure you guys are sharing this out to them. Um, conservative friends that are in favor of the death penalty. If you have uh, social uh, democratic friends that are in favor of the death penalty, share this out with them. This is incredible. Yeah. 
Because you have to, um, there's this perception that like all Democrats are against the death penalty and all Republicans are in favor. And that's not the case. In fact, like I said, I had tremendous success repealing the death penalty with the help of Republicans. A large percentage of the bills that are currently being introduced and championed are being led by Republicans. And in every state that I did overturn the death penalty, we would have had a much easier pathway had every Democrat been a yes vote. And I promise you they weren't. Um, So it's, it's, it's a... It's not totally true. Yes, like historically, Republicans were more in favor and Democrats were more opposed. But we see those numbers really um, shrinking on the Republican side. And then you still have your kind of holdouts on the Democrat side. So outreach is always important. The other thing I didn't touch on that I just do think is so important to mention is um, not only do you need to know the offenders and the people that you're discussing when we talk about this issue, but a lot of people tend to speak for victims and their family members on this issue and not know them. And that really grinds my gears because... um, I do know them. I've spent a lot of time around them. I've organized coalitions of them. I am myself a murder victim's friend. Um, And so this idea that like, oh, you wouldn't say this if you were a murder victim's family member. Yeah, I would. And at the end of the day, so would a lot of the others. Every state that I've overturned the death penalty in, we saw coalitions of murder victims' family members show up in favor of getting rid of the death penalty in numbers of like 40 to one who would be there in favor of keeping it. I'm it, it's overwhelming the number of victim family members who want to get rid of this. And if you actually know what you're talking about, it makes sense, right? Like from the outside, you're like, I'd want revenge. But when you really have gone through this lived experience, you understand the reasons they don't, which is that you get drugged through the mud in courts for years and years and years for a verdict that's neither swift nor sure. Uh, The vast majority of victims, family members who do go all the way through the execution process are promised this will give you closure, this will bring you healing, and and then it happens, and they're like, wait, that that didn't, that actually made it worse, like, Um, And what we find is that many of these victims, family members have other things they want and need that they're not getting. A lot of them want what's known as restorative justice. um, And that's a more customizable type approach where some of them want counseling. Some of them want um, to talk. Some of them want to sit down and talk to the offender and ask, why did you do this? Some of them want an apology. Some of them want um, restitution. Some of them need help relocating if they're still in danger. Some of them need help with childcare if they've lost a provider or a spouse. The list goes on for the services they actually need. They don't get those things because we waste so much money trying to be punitive with the death penalty. And so, I mean, some of them, you know, have ethical issues with the death penalty. Others feel that their prosecutor didn't listen, listen to them about what they actually wanted as an outcome. The list goes on and on, but I get very annoyed when people try to speak for victims in this discussion or their family members. Like I would never, I would say up front, there are victims members who want it. But as far as I've seen in, in the states I've worked in, they are a much smaller percentage than those who don't want it. And at the end of the day, that isn't how we should be determining public policy. We should make it based on what is efficient and what works. But um, and, and what protects, you know, individual rights and civil liberties. But I will say this idea that all victims family members want it is completely false and often driven by prosecutors and police. Yeah. And I think also I've seen, um, I've seen some victims or family members of victims of, of homicide and, and otherwise that when they spoke about it, they were against the death penalty as well. And they said, you know, why do I want him to live free? Because as soon as he's gone, he no longer has to live with the guilt of what he did to our family. And and mm-hmm. so uh, some people have taken that perspective as well. And I think that that's one that like really resonated with me was, why would you want to give them that free path? Why would you want to give them the freeness of, hey, look, you're done now. 
you no longer have to feel the guilt that you took somebody from me that you took somebody from from our community and everything else um i want to i want to ask one question from the chat i think that we've answered it but just not directly um before we move on and the question is is convict uh convicted rapists have been falsely accused and, and later exonerated do you think that rapists deserve the death penalty um yeah i don't believe in the death penalty for any any reason any case any instance i think no matter what first and foremost the data is all stacked on the side against it there is no actual credible argument in favor of keeping it if you're just looking at practical reasons um and even if all of that's not enough for you the fact that you think the government can get it right like this this government like mm. mm -mm. so no i don't want it for any crimes um and i certainly think that you know if we cannot ascertain who killed somebody correctly rape isn't even more nuanced type case that can be harder to prove. Um, and at the end of the day, like people put too much stock in our mechanisms for solving crimes. Um, a lot of the reasons we have innocence in the system is because of government incompetence and corruption. But some of it's just that we don't actually have techniques as good as law and order and CSI make you think we do. Like I remember when I first started working in this, um, there was a girl who was murdered who lived in my former complex. And I was like, well, they'll, they'll get his fingerprint. They'll catch him. And one of the attorneys I worked with was like, what do you think this is? Like, yeah. you think there's just fingerprints everywhere? And I was like, well, yeah. And they were like, no, you hardly ever have DNA evidence in a case. Less than 10% of cases have DNA evidence there's at a, all. There's a 7-Eleven down the road. They had a camera that came off the pub cap. Could they just like redirect it? Re just like CSI, <laughs> come on. No, no, no. And even when you do have DNA evidence, the misapplication of it has been involved in 45% of wrongful convictions. They do things like test partial prints, partial samples that can get very fuzzy very quickly. Um, the, the labs are problematic. Um, in and of, them, of themselves, you have a lot of contamination, a lot of um, just pretty faulty scientific practices where they will try to, you know, again, test test things where they don't really have a full sample to even make accurate um, conclusions from. And then you also have a lot of corruption in the crime labs where they work for the prosecutor. Some of them are actually paid based off of conviction rates. We've caught dozens of these people lying under oath, providing false um, samples. So DNA evidence is a tool that should be considered when it's available, but it certainly is not anything that you should hang your hat on. Um, I went, I often see, I often hear people say only when, you know, we know it's somebody did it and there's like an eyewitness, but eyewitnesses have been responsible for 70% of wrongful convictions because your memory is not that good. If you know anything about the brain and our memories, they're quite fallible. It's easy to plant memories in people's heads. That's also not very certain. So the idea that there's any kind of like way we could carry this out with any sort of certainty is, um, just, it's not based in reality. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you killed killed the question i'm so glad uh there was there was a discussion going on and i thought that that was a good way to tee it up for you um so libertarians clearly just hate everything that has to do with the criminal justice system uh, as we we look to shrink the government so clearly we don't have any examples in recent history that came to the forefront of the populace's eyes of when the criminal justice system has gotten it right uh i'm of course going to ignore anything that happened in wisconsin and of course in georgia <laughs> for the sake of this but if you want to talk about those cases let's talk about let's talk about which one do you want to hop into first do you want I, I want... are we getting anything in the chat what do people want to hear about i can go on either <laughs> let's go so i let's start with the we have 15 let's... minutes left let's go with the arbor case first let's go okay. into georgia all right, let's go to Georgia. I'm in Georgia, so this one is hitting closer to home. So 
the th- couple things I think people should know about the Ahmad Arbor case that maybe they weren't paying as much attention to. Um, I think everybody knows what happened. Ahmad Arbery was a black man. He was jogging in a neighborhood nearby his home in Satila Shores, Georgia, and he was lynched in the street. Um, there was video that emerged of this about two months after the crime. The you know entire internet lost their minds over this video. It was pretty shocking to watch. There were three white men who were pursuing him, and um, and one of them gunned him down the street. So the case proceeds. Obviously, there's a lot of racial tension around it. There were a lot of people who felt that these men would not be held accountable for their actions. They were hanging their defense on a Civil War era law that basically allowed citizens to make citizen arrest. Um, But it had a couple stipulations attached to it. And so people were just sort of unsure of what was going to go on. There was some jury stacking pretty evidently. There was hardly any black people who ended up making on the jury. This is very common, guys, even though it's illegal like it's not hard to get around that basically the prosecutor just has to say that's not why they struck the jury yeah member and they're like oh like i didn't you know they had a weird left earring that didn't like it's like okay like yeah so yeah yeah, they pull this kind of crap all the time it falls under the bucket of prosecutorial misconduct but like nothing's done about it and so it was looking kind of you know fishy in this case and what a lot of people don't know is though um how many shenanigans went down behind the scenes before we got to that point so that case was rife with prosecutorial misconduct um first and foremost the elder mcmichael actually had worked for the da and i think also was a former cop mm-hmm. uh the the district attorney which is an elected position that's the prosecutor um i just did my last episode of based on prosecutors so we don't have time to get into it here but i promise you you need to know more about this go check it out if you haven't i give the full deep dive on this month's based episode but um the prosecutor was the first person mcmichael i think called from the scene left a voicemail was like hey i need some help my son just shot somebody um that prosecutor went to work basically trying to bury the case um she has now been charged actually, which is very rare, um, but she's been charged. That's how egregious her actions were. She recused herself after a few days because it was clear she was trying to skew the case. Um, but she then handpicked the district attorney who would take it over from her. This district attorney had a son that worked for her. He also went to work trying to basically ensure that McMichaels were not charged. She, she actually gave him some of the information before she handed yeah. it off to him. That was, yeah. that was, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It was, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, he wrote some letters arguing that like clearly the McMichaels were in their rights to do this and basically saying they shouldn't be charged. Um, and it took a lot of pressure for him to have to be recused as well. Um, and honestly, I firmly believe the only reason this case ever led to charges was because these good old boys oh. leaked their own video. Yes. Like, I'm sorry, I don't want to cuss, but like, what? No, you, you're you're more than welcome <laughs> like, to. What the fuck? Like, morons. Yes. Absolute morons. And just like, what bubble are you in where you think this video is going to clear your name? Like, oh I'm my glad God. that they did, because you nailed it with that. They weren't found guilty. They were only found later guilty. And sorry, spoiler alert um but they were only found guilty because we all saw the video that's the only reason why this trial truly happened right yeah they were only charged because we saw the video the prosecutor everyone was working within the system in order to kind of push this under the rug and say look he was a good old boy he's got the connections this is that political this is that political uh scene that we discuss so much as libertarians if you are politically connected if you have engagement with the government directly in favorable ties 
you can get away with murder. And this was literally it until they went, we took a video and put it out there. (laughs) And then it was just like the whole public's like, you chased this guy down and killed him? Like, you just shot him in the chest? Like, this is, you thought this was acceptable? Right. It makes you wonder what else is going down in Satilla Shores, right? Like, yeah. Crazy, crazy town. So, um, again, I think that was the only reason they were charged. I still think there was more prosecutorial misconduct in the case. But, you know, despite all odds, we did get a guilty verdict for all three men. I think that was the right verdict. But um, I think, you know, this is an important case in, in a lot of ways. One, that law, it, they quickly got rid of it quietly before the trial ever took place in Georgia. But when we say there's systemic racism, this is what we mean. This was an old law that basically gave white people the ability to chase down black citizens and do this kind of crap. And then you still see to this day prosecutors and police trying to justify that kind of behavior. And it would have worked had it not been for these idiots leaking their own video. Like that that's the long and short of it. And so, you know, the prosecutorial misconduct, the good old boys club, it's alive and well. There's another case that has not been as prominent nationally, but I'm sure you've heard about it since you're in South Carolina, um, down the Charleston region with the Murdoch murders, mm-hmm. which is another just wild ride of a case where um, the family was, you know, in control of the district attorney's office for decades and decades and had amassed a ton of power and money. And it, it now looks quite clear that they were involved in multiple murders. We're waiting for that to actually be charged and see what happens there. But they, they've been involved with a lot of murders or, or near a lot of murders that they were not charged for. And it's the, the more that comes out about that case, the crazier it gets. But I think it's another perfect example of how this good old boys operates, like this whole network operates. And it's, it's not that uncommon. Most of the time, these are small towns. The media doesn't do their job. They they hardly ever hold prosecutors or police accountable. They actually typically just take whatever they say and report as as they say it is, yeah. and that's their narrative. You know, there's this idea that the media is super left wing and therefore like they're super, you know, in the pocket of people like me who want to do criminal justice reform. And I'm like, the media is one of my biggest obstacles to criminal yeah. justice reform, actually. Like they don't get it. They totally listen to everything police and prosecutors say. They rarely interview defense attorneys or people of other opinions. Like they don't actually do that much investigative journalism. No. The podcasters are holding down the fort in this yeah. in this whole like industry. Yeah, I'm like, thank God for the podcasters. Like, um, there was another one in Mississippi, Curtis Flowers, another case just overrun with prosecutorial misconduct, and that would have kept going were it not for a podcast. So, it, the whole thing's broken. Like, throw yeah. it all away. We need to start over. But yeah, if you if you if you want to find it, it's there. Kyle Rittenhouse, obviously, prosecutorial misconduct there. I watching the populist right wake up to the fact that cops lie and prosecutors are unethical was like my porn i was like i cannot look away this is amazing they they were so like torn on that they were like clutching their their thin blue line (laughs) flags at the same time of going wait i have a gadsden flag and i have this flag and they're actually in what's happening they don't work together like it was beautiful i loved it It with the arbery case this was my favorite moment during all of everything unfolding was during the court trials just um when i believe it was during closing arguments or just before then um the defense came out and basically said look there was there were some crimes that they believed that he had committed and so they were going to, and these were months before, there were crimes that we believed that he had committed, and so they were just trying to do a citizen's arrest for those crimes. And the judge was like, yeah, you have to do that like immediately after. You don't get to wait weeks and then go after them. And they were like, you gutted our entire defense. It's like, 
but it was clearly in the law like the, the law was bad and it should have not been there at all but it, it was even better than like what they tried to say it was it had to be like you caught them in the act of carrying out a crime and and yeah there was no such thing like the literal thing they tried to hang their hat on was that he uh, on his jog had veered off course poked around a construction site there's video of him from the construction site literally just like looking around and then he goes on his merry way it's like he was doing nothing wrong. He did no. nothing. There's video evidence of all of this. Like they, it was a totally crackpot defense. But again, you know, just because the system is structured in such a way that like we often do see people like the McMichaels and their neighbor, Brian, get off that people had little faith. Um, and I think, you know, there's some people who are saying, oh, look, the justice system worked in the Maude Arbery case. It worked in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Like, yes, there was corruption, but things, you know, they came out as they should have been. It's like, those were two of the highest profile cases in recent memory. The scrutiny on them, the media attention on them yeah. was next level. And we still saw this kind of corruption. The fact that we managed to get the right verdicts in those two cases is thanks to the scrutiny and media attention, I think, more than anything else. Yes. And if you think that 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 this is proof the system works, it's not. This is this is I hope it shows you just how much corruption goes on. Cause if they'll do this in a high profile case, imagine <laughs> what they're doing to the average defendant who has no media attention, who can't afford a real attorney and who is at the mercy of this, of this corruption. Yeah. And that was one thing that um, the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, he was talking about it because of some of the media actions, you know, MSNBC having a reporter that chased the jury van, um, having a lot of things taken out of context. He spoke during the jury deliberation and he said you know there may be i may not allow for the media to come in to my courtroom for these high profile cases anymore and and that was so scary for me because it was because of the media being there that we could actually have have that insight and be able to see what was going on and we could make sure that you know that the system was going to work in the way that it's supposed to you know it was, it was the hannah Coxes out there in the world that understand you know how the litigators are supposed to work how the the prosecution is supposed to work how the defense is supposed to work and then when you talk about those things and you say these are things that they openly failed on where a lot of other people outside of that wouldn't have been able to see this or didn't have that wherewithal or that understanding it's only because the media was there that we were allowed to be there to give those those takes and so it's so terrible to see the media who I've commonly called the fourth branch of government because that's kind of what they do regardless of partisan side they're going to be there to protect the government um they're taking away our ability to our first amendment of being able to to redress our grievances of being able to to bear witness to all this stuff and and that's my biggest fear and so I was so glad to I I was scared to see him see that or say that but I'm hoping and I'm I'm hopeful that we'll be able to see the media go back there uh, once again. Yeah, I think it's something we need to demand. We already see with the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which I wrote about this, um, the federal courts don't allow recordings and haven't for decades and decades. And I think that's wrong. And I yeah. think it's meant to, to avoid accountability and transparency. People are right to be upset about that. It's not a conspiracy, though. This is their general practice. Um, thankfully, Kyle's case and the Rittenhouse or Kyle Rittenhouse case and the Ahmaud Arby case were both um, state level. So those same laws don't apply. But judges do have dis discretion on if and when they allow cameras in their courtrooms. And so I think that that actually should be a really smart thing for people to push for at the state level is, is um, laws that demand that they allow cameras in because we cannot do 
our jobs as actual engaged citizens without transparency and without access to the proceedings of our government. So uh, it's a very basic right to demand. And I'm, I'm happy that people seem to be waking up to some of this because yeah. I know what they do behind the scenes. I know. But I sound like a conspiracy theorist when I tell people. I'm like that guy with the map behind him. I'm like, they do this and they do this. And people are like, do they? No, they do and then more. So like, I want this kind of attention on so many more cases. And it's also important for people to remember that um, the Rittenhouse and the Mata Arbery case were outliers for another way, which is that they were trials. And you need to remember that 95% of state trials and 99% of, of federal trials or cases, sorry, do not go to trial. They yep. are pled out. The majority of our cases are plea deals. People get bullied into them, coerced into them. We don't have jury trials that much anymore. That's a fundamental right we have stripped away from Americans. That's a huge deal. It's the number one driver of mass incarceration. We should be livid about this, and we need to demand more trials as a whole because now that we've seen what goes down in these trials, imagine the corruption in the plea deals where there's no jury, no third party, no scrutiny. It's one person. It's your district attorney getting to decide who to charge, what charges to give them, and ultimately Really what sentences to give them yeah it's uh, yes and plea deals i think if i can get you to come back on will be that conversation i think i could spend hours talking about the the aboredness of that and and how the actual sentencing should work at least in a in a constitutionally constrained or a libertarian society what that would look like i think that that would be absolutely amazing but so now every viewer has fallen madly in love with Hannah Cox and wants to know where can they find more from Hannah Cox? Uh, so we've talked about some of them, but feel free to, to reiterate them. Where can we find you? What's all your social media tags? We need, more Hannah. Yeah, so. <laughs> we need more Hannah. Um, HannahDcox.com is my website. They can go there for a lot of my articles and resources. They can find my writing at fee.org. Uh, social media wise, I'm at Hannah D Cox on Twitter and TikTok. I'm at Hannah Danielle Cox seven on Facebook. Um, and then they can search base politics on all audio platforms or go to Hannah Cox on YouTube and watch base there. Oh, so, so many great places to go find you. I absolutely love you for coming on. I appreciate you immensely. Um, Happy to. I, I hope that you'll come back because I'm going to throw you like every time something comes up and be like, Hannah, you want, you want to knock <laughs> this one out of the park too? But thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful night. I'm going to wrap things up here and then um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. All right. Perfect. Chat. Can I not just say like how amazing it was to have Hannah come on to talk about all these things with us tonight? What an amazing conversation. I'm going to probably listen to this two to three times over because there's just so much good information there. Um, hope you guys will as well. Make Please make sure that you guys are sharing this out. We discussed the death penalty. We discussed some of the, the cases, right? The Arbery case. Um, we talked about the Rittenhouse case and, of course, the Julius Jones case. A lot of good information in those. These are things that we can help guide and, and um change our culture around us society around us and that's what's going to lead to political change down the road right because always politics is downstream of 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 society so let's go ahead and and push forward if you guys are able to share this out show some love um appreciate each and every one of you guys for hopping in tonight if you guys have not already gotten ready for the muddy waters lineup Get ready because tomorrow night you got the one and only Matt Wright and Spike Cohen coming together to traverse the muddy waters of freedom. Um, that will be at 8 p.m. ish Eastern. 
they're going to have an amazing time, of course, going over current events with you guys. Uh, Wednesday night will be my fellow Americans with Spike Cohen and his amazing guests. Thursday night will be Writer's Block with Matt Wright and his amazing guest. And Friday night from Bayous to Igloos at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. The only one that's not at 8 p.m. Eastern, I will say, tonight went on. On time. What's up? But... From Bayou to Igloos with Cajun and Eskimo Libertarian. A fantastic week. Next week, I'm sorry, y'all. I will not be here because we will have the Liberty Roundtable next Monday night. They're going to be talking about healthcare. Hmm. Having a, a diverse table discussion, a roundtable discussion around healthcare. It's one you're not going to want to miss. So come on back here next Monday night. And with that, I hope you guys all have an amazing week. I love you all. Appreciate you all. And I will see you guys here soon. Take care.